0: The Roman Empire was really one country, one entity, we think of it as a country today, they would call it an empire, that had branched out and taken control of many other areas of the world and made them parts of the empire, provinces of the empire. And there was a governor appointed by the Romans to rule over these areas. In the case of Judea, the governor was Herod the Great at the time of Jesus' birth. The nation of Israel, though, under Roman rule, still had the right to practice its own religion, and largely to rule itself. And that's a significant issue because had it not been that way, the temple would not have been functioning and all the sacrificial system would not have been functioning. But the Romans saw fit to leave the Jews alone enough that they could practice in their own way. And so in this day, as, Paul, as uh, Luke begins his account, the temple is still standing. sacrifices taking place and priests still officiating at the temple. One of those priests was a man named Zacharias. He came out of the division of Abijah. Now, back in the time of David, King David, he takes the priesthood of the nation of Israel, the sons of Levi, all the sons and many of the grandsons of the man Levi from the tribe. You know Levi now because we've studied Judah or studied Jacob and you know his son Levi. He took from that line 24 men sons, grandsons, great grandsons, various men in the line of Levi and appointed each of them over a division of the priests that fell underneath Levi. So we ended up with 24 divisions of priests underneath Levi. Each one having a man from the family of Levi as the head of that division. One of those divisions was Abijah and he was the man who led that division. So Zacharias descends from that division of the priesthood, of the Levitical priesthood. Now each division served in the temple one week, two times a year. So they'd have a week now, and then six months later, they'd have another week. So it was a rotating role for service in the temple. His wife, we're told, Elizabeth, and by the way, Elizabeth is a Hebrew word. His wife, Elizabeth, was, as we're told, from the family of Aaron. Well, there's also, there's the Levitical priesthood, but there's also the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was a brother of Moses. Moses and Aaron both descend from the Levi tribe. So what the scripture is telling us right up front is, this family had both parents, both mother and father, as descendants out of the tribe of Levi. Both were priestly descendants, though only the man could serve as a priest. It's clear, even as we begin the story, that God wanted the product of this marriage, of this union, to to be someone who would be fit to serve God. Not just in how God might grow him up and train him, but in his very lineage. He was going to be, as it were, born for service. Born to serve. Because that's the role of a priest, to serve God before the temple. Moreover, scriptures tell us they were blameless. They were blameless. Now, some in here would have, or some who would read this might have difficulty understanding the term. Fortunately, we've studied Genesis. So if you remember, there was another man in Genesis that was described as blameless. Noah. Noah was considered blameless. And we studied back then, it didn't mean without sin. It didn't mean a literally sin-free human being. There's only ever been one of those. And we're not talking about Christ right now. It means without giving opportunity for men to find fault. It means from a worldly perspective, from a man's perspective, you would not easily find fault with this person. It would be something consistent with Romans 12.18, where Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's that concept that no matter what you do, try as hard as you can so that no one can find fault in who you are as a means of encouraging your witness. You know, as we pass by this just momentarily, don't lose sight of the fact that when God wishes to bestow on men the greatest of honors, for he's about to do that here to Zacharias, he tends to select men and women who lead godly lives. That should be obvious, I guess, but sometimes we forget that. We may want God to bestow upon us honor and opportunity, and then we forget that he is going to choose men and women who reflect glory upon him. And so often the case is he picks people who are leading godly lives. God called Noah blameless, we just said. Abraham, on the other hand, was told to be blameless. Job was called blameless. Now, you wouldn't necessarily want to get what Job got out of the deal, but... That was part of how God directed Job. David declares repeatedly in the Psalms, we should seek to be blameless. We should all make that a high priority in our life, if for no other reason, but that God might use us in a great way. Now, as the story begins, there's only one problem with the marriage. And it's a common one. We've seen this before. The union was childless. Isn't this interesting? We just studied Genesis and here it is again. A a marriage that's clearly God-ordained, but yet... Childless And childless for a long time. This woman was getting older, we're told, and therefore was not likely to have children. We saw this with Abraham. We saw this with Isaac. We saw this with Jacob. It seems that whenever God wants to make the point that when the child finally arrives, it comes from Him, and it's His decision that they have the child, and it's His purpose in giving the child, He will tend to delay the arrival so that when it shows up, you know who to credit the God that tends to work in a very common pattern and it also emphasizes that this child is from God now because this birth birth is going to be closely connected to the birth of Christ which is where we're going of course the giving of this child is preceded by angelic announcers now I want you to notice we're going to study this today and again into next week there are some very strong parallels between how John the Baptist comes along and Christ comes along not just in the fact that they're born in similar points in time, but in the way their birth is announced, in the way it comes about. There are some strong parallels in the Scripture. We'll probably draw those out more when we get to Christ's birth so that we can look back and see how they compare. But if you take some notes, look for them yourselves. Let's go to verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will, uh, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's quite an amazing vision he must have seen. Now Zacharias is in the temple, but we want to be more specific about why he's there and what he's doing. He was in the temple to perform these duties that fell to his division twice during the year, but he would have had first understand he would have had to travel from home to get to the temple. It's like a business trip. It's like uh, doing reserve duty every. Few months, He's taking a week of time leaving his home and his family and his job and coming to the temple to serve in this way. Each day during this week, there would have been a daily ritual. There were incense burned around the daily sacrifices and there was typically a morning and an evening sacrifice. And the temple's in business. It's there to accommodate the needs of the Jewish population who would come there and sacrifice for their sin or make offering. So it's an active, busy place. It's not like the church... You, know, you don't want to think of this like as a church on Monday. It's, it's a place where every day of the week, except for the Sabbath, there are things going on in there, and even on the Sabbath, but in each case, there's a ritual going on. Burning incense was the role of one priest going into the holy place before the altar, and it was done at an appointed time, while the crowd stayed outside the holy place waiting for uh, the priest to emerge, having burned the incense... Them knowing that back in this room where they're not allowed to go, there is incense rising before the altar and just knowing that, put them in a state of prayerful meditation and praise, knowing that that was going on inside the building. But they send Zacharias in to do it. Now, there were so many priests in each division by the time of this story. I mean, families had grown, men had had children and their children had children. Long after David is gone, there are thousands of priests at least in each of these major divisions. So, the opportunity to be the one in your division to go in and burn the incense was a once in a lifetime opportunity. At best, each man would get one time in their life to go in and burn the incense. So this is Zacharias' day. That's why they say he was selected by Lot. It's like hitting the lottery. And this is high honor for him to be able to do this. He will be alone in the Holy of Holies. High honor for a Jew and for a priest, do you think this day, by the way, was an accident? Do you think his selection on this particular day, where he would be before the altar? Yeah, he's standing before the altar of God at the point where God needs him to be in order to fit the timing God has, and by lot he's selected, certainly that's God's plan. But only priests could go into the holy place. But on this moment, only one would. The, the fact that priests could, generally speaking, enter the holy place doesn't mean they just walked in with impunity any time they wanted It wasn't a breezeway. You know, it was a room that was used for a specific purpose. And if you weren't in there for one of those purposes, you weren't in there. The Holy of Holies was even more so that way. Only one man one day a year could go in. So uh, he's in there alone, ready to do his duty. The angel appears as he stands before the altar. Naturally, we're told he's afraid. And then the angel says, don't fear. That's such a common pattern, by the way. Angels appear. First thing they always say is, do not be afraid. You wonder if sometimes they walk into each other up in heaven. Do not be afraid. Oh, sorry, I can't keep... I'm always saying that. First thing out of my mouth. Do not be afraid. It's obviously a fearful thing to see an angel. These are not fluffy little cherubs with wings and, you know, they... Oh, I just want to reach out and cuddle you. No, this is something you're fearful of. You're afraid to see this thing appear. The angel says right off the bat, your petition, your prayers have been answered. Your desire for a child is going to be met. Obviously, Zacharias had been praying for a child. Is there a little lesson just as we pass here again, and the same is true for Abraham, how long had he been praying for something, and in every day until this day, he might have thought to himself, God never answers my prayers. Little did he know there was a timing issue here for when this child could appear. We should never give up hope on God. We should never stop requesting and think that because it didn't come last week, it's not going to come next week. There is no such thing as you know, a time limit how long you can ask for something because God's purpose when he fulfills it may be different in timing than what you expect. Now he tells him your son's coming you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John and he tells essentially uh, Zacharias that your son's going to have a special place in God's plan for man's redemption. The very last book of the Old Testament Malachi was the last thing God spoke to the nation of Israel before the coming of his son. And in fact Malachi is the last prophet before John the Baptist who is considered the next prophet because he foretold Christ's coming. The final words given to Israel about their Messiah's coming is re- before he actually arrived is recorded in Malachi. Malachi is a prophetic book. God says to Israel in Malachi this, verse, or chapter 2 verse 17. I want you to listen to the tone and listen to some of the context. He says in verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied Him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. And again in, in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 he says this, "For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil-doer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze," says the Lord of hosts, "so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Those last two verses I just read are the last two verses of the Old Testament. The last two things God says to the nation, to the world, if you will, before He begins again with Christ's coming is to say, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, that's the quote that the angel uses when he addresses Zacharias and says, you're going to have a son. But that stern warning that before the coming of the Lord, God would send a messenger ahead of him, the context, though, it makes clear he's not talking about Christ's first coming. The context of Malachi makes clear the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's a reference to tribulation. The great and terrible day of the Lord is not the second coming, but it is tribulation. Anytime you hear that phrase, the great and terrible day of the Lord, you're talking about the seven years of tribulation. And there's some other places I could take to reference that and show you that that is in fact consistently the case. So why is the angel speaking to Zacharias, saying a prophecy out of Malachi about the coming of the Lord, but yet talking about his second coming and not his first, when in fact John the Baptist's role, of course, is to prophesy about the first coming. Why that disconnect? Why did he not just refer to the first coming? For example, is John the Baptist Elijah, maybe? Some have proposed that. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, men in the day of John the Baptist actually came to that same conclusion and started to wonder if maybe... In his coming in the way of Elijah, according to the prophet Malachi, maybe John the Baptist was Elijah. Is that what John's trying to teach us? And here's what John said in chapter, or John the Baptist said in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Why three questions? Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? Where's the third one fit in? Well, in the Jewish tradition, because there were so many prophecies of a Christ that would come and die, and then there were prophecies of a Christ that would come and rule, they thought there were two Messiahs. There was a teaching amongst the Jewish hierarchy that believed there would be one Messiah who would come and die for, your, for the sins of the nation. There would be another Messiah who would come and rule over them. They had missed the point that there aren't two Messiahs. There's two comings of one Messiah. And so they were looking for the Christ, who was to rule, or the prophet, who was to come and die. Remember, all the prophets died. All the prophets came and were martyred. So are you the Christ? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah then? No. God himself testifies that he is not. But here's what he says. Going on in John 1:2. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. He's referring to Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, later in Luke, we're going to study Zacharias himself. Actually quotes from that same place in Isaiah. A voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's interesting, when you go back and you read Isaiah 40, in that chapter, there are elements of both Christ's first coming and his second coming being talked about. So, Isaiah puts the two together for us again. They keep being reunited. So, how do we figure all this out? John the Baptist is fulfilling parts of prophecy with respect to the Messiah's coming. He is fulfilling the parts of Isaiah 40 that relate to Christ's first coming. The man who would be in the wilderness, proclaiming a way for the Lord. Just as we are told by the angel that the the purpose that this son would serve is to do what? Prepare a people for God. And that is the role of John the Baptist. He is fulfilling that aspect of prophecy principally out of Isaiah 40. So, why then did the angel refer to Malachi and the second coming and to Elijah? We know that our God works through pictures. If you've studied Genesis with me, there's only, you know, you don't have to take very long to figure out that God works through pictures and he works through repetition. He often places events in the lives of men as pictures or examples of greater things to come. For example, Isaac was a picture of Christ. He orchestrated Isaac's life. Not that Isaac was Christ, but that his life pictured Christ. Joseph. Joseph was not Christ, but his life pictured Christ. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not Elijah, but his life pictures Elijah. John the Baptist is a forerunner to Elijah. And in the time when Christ returns for his second coming... We are told conclusively that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah himself, not a man representing Elijah, but Elijah himself, will return and foretell that second coming. But he'll do it prior to the tribulation, prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will return the hearts of the fathers to their sons. He will do things to restore family relationships and to bring righteousness back in preparation for Christ's return. Just as John the Baptist is doing it now, before the first coming, Elijah will do it for Christ before his second coming. And in other words, as John the Baptist is a type of Elijah, think of it in these ways. Christ's second coming has greater glory and greater power than his first coming did. Similarly, his messenger for that greater coming will have more power and more glory than the one for his first coming. Elijah is a greater man to... John the Baptist, just as Christ's second coming, will be a greater return than his first appearing was in power and in glory and in majesty. See the point. So the angel is connecting the two forests in the way he quotes Malachi in referring to John. But John himself becomes the testimony later to say, no, I am not Elijah. Now when he quotes from Malachi, he adds an interesting detail. When the angel speaks to Mal- about Malachi, he says that the messenger would prepare a people made ready for the Lord. I just referred to that, right? John's ministry, when we look at it here in the coming weeks, John's ministry was about preparing a people for Christ. I mean, when you talk about making a way for Christ, was he out building a road? No. Was he establishing cities so that there would be somebody for Christ to preach to? No. He's preparing a people for Christ. In chapter 3, we're going to study John's baptism of Jesus. But for now, just consider this when Christ begins his adult ministry he starts with a baptism he goes immediately from there into the desert where he's tempted and after that he begins to preach so his first step out of childhood and into adulthood into ministry is to go to John the Baptist and be baptized from there go into the wilderness and be tempted from there go into ministry we're going to study how all those fit together as we go through the book at the point when he came though to John for a baptism there were already people gathered around John weren't there? John had already begun to preach about baptism and about repentance. And he was already gathering people to him, all of them looking forward to a Messiah. The message John the Baptist carried was, don't worship me, worship the one who is to come. And he started to gather that interest so that when Christ appeared, when Christ came down to the water to be baptized, he already had an audience, as it were. He already had a group of people ready to follow after him. Think about the majesty of that. If Christ appeared tomorrow in a world that wasn't looking for Him, He would almost seem—it almost would seem as though when He pleased for people to hear Him and listen to Him, that that He was desperate for attention. It would almost have an air of of desperation to it. It's not a very uh, honoring way for the Lord to appear in the midst of people who don't have any interest in what He has to say, to their own detriment. Rather than have it that way, God used John to prepare an audience so that when Christ appeared, there was a remnant, there was a group of people renewed in their interest for a Messiah and ready to receive Him. As soon as Christ is going to appear and begin His ministry, He already has a ready following. That was John the Baptist's ministry. To point the way so that those who would be interested would know who to look for and who to find Him, how to find Him. Keep in mind, Christ, we're told in Scripture, doesn't look like anything other than an ordinary man. He didn't glow... He wasn't seven feet tall. He wasn't as strong as, you know, Samson. There was nothing about his physical appearance that would have told you he was the Messiah. Because God is not going to encourage followers to believe in him on the basis of physical proof. He always demands it be on the basis of faith. And if you couldn't believe in Christ for what he said, or for the miracles he performed, but rather were looking for a certain kind of image, he wasn't going to satisfy your need. John the Baptist had to be the one to point the way because there would have been no way for someone to immediately tell Christ was the Messiah. You know, God's still doing that today, by the way. He still does this today. We don't have John the Baptist running around, but who do we have? We have the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist isn't just a type or a picture of Elijah. He's also a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Which is in one reason why, when we looked at baptism later on, why he baptizes Christ. Why his whole ministry revolves around baptism. Why we call him John the Baptist. It is because of his picturing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person in the Trinity today responsible for preparing hearts to receive the Lord. You know the story of the seeds on the ground? The only seed that gets anywhere, produces any fruit, grows and flourishes, is the one that finds ready soil. We all start with a rocky heart that doesn't become ready to grow anything until the Holy Spirit prepares it. The Holy Spirit has to till that ground. Make the heart ready to receive the Word of God or it will not flourish. John 6.44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And later in that same chapter, verse 65, he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That's a fundamental truth of Scripture. John the Baptist was bringing to the people in that day an awareness of their need for repentance and of the need for a Savior and to look for one. The Holy Spirit in our hearts does the same thing. Convicts you of sin, points you to the need for salvation, and draws you to the one and only way. But it's still Christ Himself who must make Himself known to you by the Word of God. And then in that moment, your readiness and that solution fit together and create salvation. So Zacharias has heard the words of the angel and here's how he responds. Luke 1, verse 18. Zacharias says to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Does this question sound familiar? Aren't we studying Genesis again? Did I forget? Am I in the wrong book again? You see how fundamental Genesis is to the rest of Scripture? What, what does this remind us of? Of course, it's Abraham. When Abraham was told he was going to have a son, Abraham in Genesis 7, 17, 16 says this. I will, this is God talking to Abraham. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be mother of nations and kings of, uh, kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell, I love this, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? The reactions seem almost exactly the same, don't they? Zacharias says, how will I know this for certain? I'm old, she's old. Abraham says, is it really true that two old people can have another child? Well, look what happens to Zacharias. Verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Okay, so why does he get zapped and Abraham got scot-free? That's interesting, isn't it? They have almost exactly the same reaction to almost exactly the same situation. But Abraham laughed. Maybe that makes it even worse. And Zacharias simply said, how am I going to know for certain? Well, consider the words that each used and what thoughts were likely behind those words. Zacharias said, how will I know for certain? In other words, he asked for proof. He asked for a sign. He asked for something that would cement his belief in the angel's promise. Prove to me, in other words, you can do what you just said you were going to do. Now, I want you to consider this. He's standing in front of an angel that's so... Impressive. It's making him scared. Alright? How often this happens, I don't know. But remember, he's in a place he may never have been before. Or at the very least, he's never done this particular thing before. So maybe he's not sure if this doesn't happen to everybody. Or maybe he's just in the moment not appreciating the fact that if you're standing before an angel, that should be proof enough that something supernatural is taking place. But he doesn't believe it and he says, I need proof and... The angel says, to prove his power, he was going to keep him silent. Now I'm sure he believed. He got the sign. You know what's so humorous about this for me is, he got exactly what he asked for. You want proof that I can give you a child? Try this on. You're not going to talk for nine months. Okay, now I believe. Too late. You're, You're mute. You're mute for nine months. Now Abraham, on the other hand, his statement I think is different. In chapter 15, he had already been told that his son, he was going to have a son and God had entered into the covenant with him at that point, proving to him that there would be a relationship that God could not break. That was earlier. Now in chapter 17, Abraham already has a son. He has Ishmael. By this point, he's already got a son. So naturally, Abraham believes, like we taught back in this time, Abraham believes that Ishmael is the son. He's got the son God promised him. When he hears that Sarah is going to have a natural child, he laughs, but he's astonished. And I would argue, by his exclamation, he says, Is it possible that I can have a child at this age? In other words, his astonished reaction is one of belief. I don't get get astonished at the thought that it might happen. I get astonished at the fact that it is going to happen. You're going to give me another son, he says. You're going to give... Uh, Is it possible that you're going to give me a son and my wife a son? In other words, his astonishment is evidence of his faith. Unlike Zacharias, who clearly said, I need proof. His next comment, Abraham's next comment, adds further evidence to this. The next thing Abraham says to God is, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, if you're going to give me another son, Oh, that Ishmael would be the son that you select, the son who would be the one to receive the promise. And, of course, God goes on to say, no, it is not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be the one that God is going to bring. It's going to be Isaac. So he's already negotiating with God over which son is going to get the promise. There's no doubt that Abraham believed. It's just astonishment. So Zacharias's comment indicated a lack of faith, while Abraham's indicated faith in God's ability. I would also tell you there's a second reason that Zacharias is getting punished here, where Abraham didn't. Zacharias has just been given Old Testament scripture. He's just been quoted out of the Old Testament. This is a thing that every Jew, particularly a, a priest, would have known. The prophecies of Christ's coming and of the Messiah and of the fact that there would be a messenger to come before him. All of that has been quoted now out of the Old Testament. should have been very familiar to him. Abraham, on the other hand, didn't have the benefit of Scripture. There was no Scripture available for Abraham. So it would seem that God has placed a higher expectation on Zacharias. Because he had the opportunity to understand what the angel was saying out of God's word. And that thereby he was held to a higher standard. Let's finish out today with three verses out of Luke. Luke 21. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. I can just imagine the scene. He's trying to explain to them what happened. He can't say a word, and yet they, something's happened to you, hasn't it? <laughs> something's different about you, Zacharias. And perhaps this is a good lesson for us to end on today. Have we been giving God's Word kind of short shrift? How familiar are we with it? We studied here, and that's great, but how familiar are you with it? Apart from what you've studied here. Do you make learning it a priority? You know, it could be said that Zacharias could have saved himself nine months of trouble had he simply known the scriptures well enough to have appreciated in the moment, I knew there would be a messenger. Are you telling me my son is to be this messenger? And more importantly, are you telling me the Messiah's arrival is right around the corner? That immediate impact might have saved him nine months of trouble. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. How many months or years of trouble could we say we would have avoided either in the past or perhaps even yet to be in our future, but for what we might have known out of the Word of God? It's not archaic stories as you and I know so well having studied it it's very relevant it's very true to our own experience and it's been given to us for that reason do we still need milk? maybe that's our problem are we unable to discern good from evil? because we don't understand the depth of the word? if God were to place you or I on the spot like he did Zacharias how do you think we would do? how do you think we would? I think we've known enough not to ask for proof but that's because we've studied the word of God Alright, we'll we'll end there. There were some interesting things the angel said, particularly about the fact that John the Baptist would get the spirit in the womb and some other issues that we will bring up as we actually look at the birth of John when we get there next week. So, let's go to prayer. I hope that's been in... Let's set our mind back on the things of God again, on His presence before us and on His power to do anything we would wish according to His will. So join me in prayer to the Father. Father, we stand before you, holy and righteous, but not by our own, but by Christ. We stand before you, Father, weak in knowledge, weak in power, Father, often weak in will, but strengthened, Father, by the Word of God, emboldened, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, and drawn along and comforted, Father, by the fellowship of the body that you've given and we thank you Father for all three of those things Father for your word for your spirit and for this body and I pray Father as we begin now into our study as we continue in the weeks to come and as we end it at the appointed time that intimate knowledge Father of your son and his life on this earth and his purpose in coming and in the trials that he undertook for our sake Father and for the death that he took on not of his own but for each of us i pray father that that knowledge would be put to great use lord so that rather than question you and doubt rather than worry father and and consider that we must do things in our own power if they are to get get done at all father i pray that instead of those things we would have a confidence lord in you and in all that you can do for us a confidence father to know that your plan is so much better than our own And that if we would just serve you, Father, with our whole heart, so many more things could happen that we wish. I thank you, Father, for the time in this study this morning, particularly for the time in prayer, for the thoughts that were brought forward, Lord, for needs and for praises. I thank you, Lord, for the music. I thank you, Father, for the study. And, Lord, I pray that as we go out of this time and into the week ahead of us, that We would not see our service to You and our relationship with You, our very faith itself, as a Sunday morning thing, that it would not simply be, Lord, what we do when we gather in this building. I pray, Father, that the study of the Word would not be left to just what's done in the 45 minutes in this room, Father. I pray that our days would be marked by faith, that we would speak about You in our workplace, that we would speak about You to our friends and our family. I pray, Father, we would make decisions in every moment of our day that reflects what we've been taught in the Word of God and how the Holy Spirit has convicted each of us. That we would just try You. We would just try You, Father. That we would try once to do the things we know You've told us to do and and just see, Lord, how You are faithful even when we are not. I pray, Father, that the fruit that our obedience might bring would encourage us to do even more, Lord. Lord, I look forward to the week to come because we know, Father, that there is a plan that you are working. You've asked us to join it. We pray, Lord, we would see where and that you would use us mightily for your glory. And then if it be your will, Lord, as the weekend approaches next week, that you would remove barriers and take away obstacles, keep our health in check, Father. Give us a desire and a heart to be here again so that we might bring you glory in this gathering once more next Sunday morning. And we pray these things, Father, lifting up all our needs and our praises before you. Knowing that Christ, Father, is our means to enter and to stand boldly. And by his blood, Father, we are sanctified. And We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.